Welcome to Dorks Being Dorks, a Brewster Baseball Association podcast where we talk about out-of-the-park baseball and how it works in the BBA. I am Ron Collins, General Manager of the Yellow Springs Nine. Today I've got Ted Schmidt from California and Stephen Lane from Long Beach, so it's like I'm surrounded by the Pacific Division here uh, to talk. Uh, Thanks so much, Ted and Stephen, for joining me. Uh, This is going to be a really fun conversation, I think. I'm happy to be here. It's nice to nice to be a guest instead of a host on one of these for once. It's a little bit different perspective. Um, you just don't want to do all the editing. That's exactly as we were talking before. I don't I don't want to. This is to do that at all. So this is a lot of fun to not have to even worry about it. I think Steven's going to be a little bit more interesting than I am with regards to options. He has a little bit more strategy and uses them more creatively. I have pretty dry takes on everything. I'm the, one of the most conservative GMs. Well, that's what makes the world go around is all the difference. Uh, as you noted, we're going to be talking about different types of options today that go onto contracts. The first segments of this were, were basically Stephen and me talking about contracts and various different long-term situations. And so we'll segue into options. Um, uh, let me start with Stephen in that sense, since he's always the most interesting person on the podcast. <laughs> Let's start with the with the easy ones, right? Let's talk about team options, which I think uh, almost everybody uses to some degree. Uh, Long Beach and California both have players on team options right now. Uh, Stephen, what are your thoughts? How do you use team options? Uh, what do you think they do for you? I try to use team options. Well, let me back up a little bit. I think I've started using team options a little more in the past few years than, than when I first started in the BBA. I think I learned some lessons early on that if you can tack on an option or two, then for some players, it's really worthwhile. So you look at the player and see if um, you know if there's a little more risk with age or position. Those are definitely indicators uh, that would make me lean towards adding some team option years uh, at the end of a contract. Yeah, and that's... That's kind of where I where I look at it. I mean, most of these players that you're going to be signing in free, let's say, look at you know free agent signings. The contract length is probably going to put them somewhere into an age that you don't know if they're going to be the player that they are when you sign them. And I like to fill in those those last years with options just because it gives you a chance to to get out of it if it turns out that 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 player doesn't work out. You know, that's and that's for some of your more talented guys. And then the other ones are. Um, you know, if you want to look at the Crusaders roster, a guy like Jesus Fernandez, who is basically my platoon right-handed bat outfielder, plays center field mostly for me, but um, he's got a smaller contract, you know, not a big-time piece in to not give him options and to make those guarantee years still would have been relatively low risk. He's not making much money, but and I've got replacements on the way, and that's that's another another use of options. So if you're mm-hmm. if you have somebody coming up out of your minors but you don't know exactly what year they're going to get there and you're signing another piece or you've got something else that you're using as kind of a placeholder, the options give you the flexibility to know that, okay, I've got this person on my roster until I don't need them. And so they're, they're a good way for you know cheaper, cheaper deals too to just give yourself some more flexibility. Yeah, I like uh, listening to both of you talk because in between the cracks, what I hear you both saying is that you use a team option to manage the risk levels, right? I think Long Beach has uh, Mike Bailey is on a on a contract with a team option or two at the end. The interesting one on California to me was Chip Saunders. What is that, about a four or four and a half million dollar contract with a team option 
Uh, Sanders seems like kind of a player who's in that middle zone. You look at Fernando Moreno and the Baileys and the and some of the higher end players. You're mostly looking at risk for a um, you know a ten or twenty million dollar contract that you may have to cut. But somebody like Sanders is four or five million dollars. That's actually a reasonable chunk of money. But he could be worth a whole lot more before it's all said and done. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on Chip Saunders. Um, Saunders is never going to do a whole lot with a bat. That's very exciting, right? And yeah, the bar is lower for catchers, but he's even still a pretty poor hitting catcher. Um, There was some talk recently about um, catcher defense. Again, it seems to come up once a year or so. And I am firmly in the boat that catcher ability is huge. All over his career, Saunders, his, his catcher ERAs, which is, again, over a single season, very noisy but over six to seven years he's consistently been about half a run lower than his backups I don't care what he hits but all of his values is tied up in his defensive ability and I've seen catchers uh, kind of wane in terms of you know some of them hold up fine but some of them start to take lumps and if Saunders even gets down to like an eight rating a catcher he's not worth having on a roster and so that's more of a, you know, anytime I'm signing a deal where a guy gets into that, the end years or 34, 35, looking at that, I, I, I just almost always try to make sure those last years are options so that if they fall off a cliff, you can, you can get that money back. Um, tying up your cap room with deadweight contracts is just a surefire way to, to lose competitiveness. That's really the reasoning there. It's just, it's just another risk, hedge against risk. You don't, you don't know what a player is going to be that far out. Right. So. Yeah, and actually that's a, a interesting one because to me one of the risks that we often don't talk about is the risk of not being able to sign other players while you're trying to decide whether you're going to execute those options, right? Because out of the park has this weird thing where you can't tell your owner that you're not planning on executing a, a option. Right. You know, that's something you know, Randy and I have been harping about people not using them. But as you've pointed out several times, that's a really good reason to not put team options on play, not put options at all on players is it can. And that's when I'm, I'm in a crunch right now. One of the reasons I haven't thought of that is I don't operate normally at the salary cap. I try to play with about a nine, about a hundred to 102, 103 million roster tops so that I never get into that, like, can't sign the next year player sort of window situation. And I have now hurt myself with some of these options. Like, Owens, you know, I'm 2 million, 2.2 million over the cap projected next year. And maybe I shouldn't have given uh, Owen Stark a $1.8 million option for next year. I mean, he's, I'm probably going to pick it up. But on the other hand, is the ability to know that I can pick him up next year worth the fact that I was unable to make some other moves? I probably not. So I think you, you, you know, you bring up a good point. You do have to be careful to not tie up your cap space and uh, kind of you know, damage your flexibility moving forward. What are your thoughts on that, Stephen? Yeah, I think that's a, that's definitely a consideration that you, that you have to have, um, you know, and, and not only in, in free agents, uh, but I think that it impacts more, at least in my experience with extensions uh, in the middle of the season, if you're if you're up against the cap and you've got somebody with a with an option for 10, 12, 15 million, you know, you're up against your cap or you're up against your budget. You know, it may be hard to offer that extension um, in the middle of the season. That's always an interesting problem set. It's kind of like when I listen, uh, Ted, to, to you guys do your trade and or free agent uh, podcast, right? Because it depends on where you draw your system diagram. If you're asking, is this player worth that kind of a uh, risk? 
that's one way of answering the question. And the other way of answering the question is, uh, if I look at my organization as a whole, what is this contract going to do to me? And often we talk about a bad contract when going back to last uh, segment in the long-term contracts. One single bad contract at $25 million a year can really hurt you because you're digging into your budget and or salary cap. Oh. Uh, same type of things with options, but generally in team options, you're doing it to personally control the risk. Let's segment into the more controversial element and let's talk about player options for a little bit because I think if I'm going to, uh, I'll tee this up and let you guys talk about it or argue about it a little bit, right? I think Ted is fundamentally of the frame of reference that says that all player options are death to be avoided. I think Stephen and Long Beach comes from a, a slightly different perspective in that there are sometimes some values to uh, plugging a player option in. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing the two of you kind of reframe uh, that point of view because I look at your at your rosters and you you do have some kind of differences of opinion that show up in those uh, accounting screens. So talk to me about player options. There's not a single opt out or player option in mine. There's a striking difference. Mm-hmm. Stevens, Stephen, you're gonna have to convince me that there's an upside to player options. I I'm not saying that it can't work out in your favor. I just don't want to plan on it because my general view on them is that compared to real baseball, I think there's this idea that putting in a player option can lower the overall dollars that you have to offer the player. And if that were the case in OTP, and it may be, uh, I can see a little bit of value to them. I think the problem is, is that you see players in OTP accepting deals that are sometimes less than what other teams offered and I don't know how you can figure out the value of a player option in OTP, like what, what you're actually able to knock off your total money offered by putting in the player option. So not knowing that, I think uh, if, if the player underachieves or you you overpaid, then they definitely don't opt out and you're stuck with a bad deal. Or if you put in the player option and um, you're happy with the deal, well, a lot of times that means they're going to end up opting out. And so it, I just don't see too many ways it works in your favor. But I, I'm i willing to let you attempt to convince me <laughs> otherwise. Yeah, I definitely won't um, get up on the hill for player options and, and try to convince you that you should be using them all the time. Um, it's, not, it's not something that I seek out in a contract. The only one I have on my roster right now is Carlos Gonzalez, and, and he has not only a, an opt-out after this season, but he also has a player option of the final year if he does not opt out. So I, if a, if a player is requesting player option um, or an opt-out, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to... Uh, get that out of their of their mind and especially if you're looking at free agency free agency in this league tends to move pretty quick for the top guys so if they're asking you you know you may be i may be willing to give them you know that opt-out or that player option obviously the player option is is friendly for the for the player like you said they're gonna they're gonna opt out if they were good and you know in that situation you would have wanted it to be guaranteed and if they were bad then they're going to opt in and you you shouldn't have had that in there at all one thing i would um would make a point of is that the mid-contract opt-outs um 
obviously in MLB, um, that's always player friendly, um, no doubt about it. But in OOTP, I'm not yet convinced that the AI is smart enough to always make a good decision. I can't. I couldn't think of any one contract in particular, but I do seem to have in my memory one or two players who opted out in the BBA and then ended up signing for less as a free agent. So um, that would, you know, that would be the only qualifier that I would put on those mid-contract opt-outs for for OOTP. Uh, in Steven, 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 I can't possibly imagine that you would believe that the out-of-the-park baseball <laughs> games uh, AI would not be able to make a a uh, absolutely perfect decision on every one of these. All that complicated financial <laughs> multivariable. Yeah, it's um. I I think the opt outs, uh, the player options. I I, I as Ron said, I think you're deaf. Um, I think you could use opt outs cleverly, especially if you were like, we don't have enough young players come into free agency, unfortunately. But let's say that we did, say that we had 27, 28-year-olds occasionally hitting free agency, and we've had players getting into um, the league at younger ages, so we might see more of that in a few years. But I could see an opt-out being useful in that, let's say that you had a, there's a you know big 27-year-old bat in free agency, and you had a competitive window of the next three years, but you really didn't want to have to sign that player to a six-year deal. I could see you using an opt-out there to say, you know what, I'll sweeten up a year or two of this right before the opt-out and then make the salaries after the opt-out a little bit less, but the overall deal, the overall money is still more than you would be able to offer in a shorter deal, knowing that the player would most likely opt-out. And you could be creative and do it that way. I you know, I, I think there is some flexibility to have. There, there. Then I agree with Stephen. I can't think of examples, but I know we've seen players opt out that just shouldn't have, and other ones opt in where you're just kind of like, uh, okay, great, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the um, the great unknowns within out of the park, and the the whole context of what we're doing here is uh, talking about out of the park and how it operates in relation to the rule set that we use in the BBA and our cultural economy and how different uh, GMs like Kyle are very much in Ted's camp. Don't mess with the player option at all. Uh, And yet you still see uh, some very established GMs that use player options. I'm thinking, you know, Matt has a couple of guys in Sweet World and and Brewer uh, superstars who have player options at the last year of their contract, which I thought is kind of an interesting question from how do we view the negotiation process within out of the park? How do out of the park players negotiate? Well, I think that is a good question. And, and maybe, um, you know, I think I don't think there are too many people that have a better feel for what OTP is doing than uh, Matt. And um, he might feel or know or have experience that a lot of time those last year, especially for a player that's like not at the end of their career, that maybe the uh, players will choose to opt out to renegotiate to, or, you know, to get to free agency so they can sign a longer deal. Mm-hmm. To be fair, I don't have a lot of experience with player options and what players do with them. Um, so I, I just don't give them. <laughs> yeah, Stephen, I'd be interested in your uh, take on this because uh, you have Carlos Gonzalez. You talked about, to me, he's in a very similar situation as uh, my own uh, Lucas McNeil, right? Both of them are uh, ready to go into a player opt-out for this coming season, this coming off-season. 
but in the context of Ted's conversation, it struck me, you know, we have players coming into the league earlier in their age span. I think Lucas McNeil started at age 21. He's now going to be 29. And the out-of-the-park uh, players' model of what they're requesting and so forth is seems to be shifting a little bit. Lucas McNeil signed for $10 million for a couple of years and then had a, uh, wanted an opt-out, right? Uh, Carlos Gonzalez signed for, I think it's $14 million for a couple of years and now has an opt-out that will go on further. The push-pull here is I loved having Lucas McNeil for a couple of years at $10 million. Who wouldn't want cargo at $14 million for a couple of years? Uh, but the downside to that is, is it throws a huge amount of uncertainty in our planning uh, yeah. When it comes to the following years, guys, those are not uh, unlike the Chip Saunders situation with California at four or five million dollars. These are 15 million dollars of your future payroll that is uncertain until that decision gets made. Right. So what are your thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, it's you know, it, it's it's there because you wanted it. And I don't <laughs> I don't know that I like it, but I don't know what the contract would have had to be without it. And I think like a lot of contracts, uh, like I, I talked about in the free agency, you've got to really take it one at a time and, and uh, evaluate the individual player and, and see about their loyalty and, and their performance and your anticipation of when they're going to decline. Um, and like you said, it's a lot of uncertainty, not only in your, your budget, but also just in your on-the-field performance. Um, cargo is, you know, at least four to five wins. Uh, McNeil is probably a few wins more than that. Cool. So it just kind of uh, <laughs> increases the complexity there, and I'm not sure that I'm answering your question, so I apologize. No, I think that's a it's a good conversation or a good um... Uh, backdrop off of that, right? I like your word complexity because to Ted's point, you don't actually know what the out of the park algorithms are doing. You don't know if you hadn't have had a opt out for uh, Carlos Gonzalez at $14 million, would you have had to pay 18 or $20 million in order to keep him around for that whole time? I don't know. In a real life situation, uh, perhaps that's true. Perhaps a real life player would take a a million or three less in order to get an opt-out. I, you know, I don't know. But if you'd have had to pay $20 million for cargo in the last couple of years, how would that have affected your ability to compete within the rest of the salary cap, right? Because we have a salary cap where Major League Baseball teams do not. Yeah. I mean, that would have been, you know, if I was another $6 million on him, then that's a that's a lot. For for example, just that you look at that number, and I brought in Julio Velasco to shore up my rotation, and he's six million dollars. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I had been right up on the cap, I would have been looking at do I cut Mike Bailey because he's injured and out for the year, and and just eat. Well, I'm, I'm eating that money anyways. That's not a good example, but you know, <laughs> do I have to cut? Uh, well, if you cut him, you you eat the money, but you don't eat it in, against your salary cap. Yes, exactly. So, do I do that? Do I have to to cut somebody else? You know, I I'm really stuck with with what I've got. So, no. yeah, if the opt out means that he took a few million less on an annual basis, then that's worth it to me. This might become more important going forward in terms of trying to bribe players to take lower annual average annual value deals with opt-outs and maybe even with player options. 
simply that we have seen a huge increase in the asking prices of players for signing extensions and free agency, although uh, most of us are so stubborn with free agency that we just wait for them to come down. Um, <laughs> I've never run into really, once you know, once I got my budget and my revenue in shape where I could um, pay up to the salary cap and have have some slush money to spare, uh, I, you know, I never had a problem running a hundred if you gave me a hundred and, you know, hundred million, 105 million worth of players, I will, could always put a competitive team out there. If you listen to some of the free agency recap stuff um, that I do with Randy, I am clearly somebody who does not believe in, in overpaying for players. I think once you do that, it's a slippery slope and you start getting into weird situations where you've got to, you're always robbing Peter to pay Paul. And I, I tend to not do that. And up to this point, really the salary cap to me has been plenty high enough that you can put a really talented team out there as long as you never ever overpay anyone but on the other I mean look I've got Luis Gracia who's in the running for Nebraska signed for 13 million this year and 11 million the next year and 10 and um you know the DeFazio contract I had to get goofy like as you guys mentioned that one year with a 21 23 million dollar year to bump up the average annual value, but the rest of it's really reasonable. But with these asking prices going up a ton, well, I might have to consider using options if they if they truly do work in a way that they get players to take a lower average annual value. Actually, one of my notes here was that as the player model gets better, the idea of opt-outs and player options becomes much more relevant. The other aspect that uh, you've mentioned before and that relates into this is the whole point of what are the market forces out there? In the past, we've usually had no more than a you know two or four players, uh, big name players out in the free agent market. And as Stephen said, our free agency works in such big chunks, right? I mean, you do one and then you get two weeks or three weeks of time. So you only get like five cycles through free agency. So you have to kind of make your best offer. <laughs> right. Uh, so how does the player, as the player model relates to those things uh, differently, that might be a big deal. One uh, comment in in looking at this, we have twelve fairly big name players who are facing opt outs this year. If fifty percent of those execute their opt out, we'll have six big name players coming in from opt outs, which are in the middle of their contracts and tend to be younger. Who is that, by the way? Besides McNeil and Gonzalez, uh, I've got three. I've got uh, Lelouch, <laughs> oh, McNeil, and my center fielder Carlos Garcia, yeah, who's a, who's a smaller one. News. Yeah. Right. Don Don Draper from Wichita, uh, solid infielder, right? Vancouver's yeah. Jose Morales and Alfredo uh, Bermudez. Uh, Cargo from Long Beach. We've got Norris Rutledge from Jacksonville. Jesus Ramos uh, from Edmonton. Elijah Curry from Brooklyn, solid hitter. And Juan Jose Elizondo and Antonio Correa from Atlantic City. So uh, Correa is, is done, but... Elizondo was one of those weird guys. That's a that's gonna be I, you know I I don't wish anything bad upon either of you or your franchises, but there's a part <laughs> of me that kind of just hopes all those players opt out just because I want to see a good free agency class for once. I don't have any money to spend in it, but I just want to see something happen. And that's beyond the players who are actually heading to free agency, right? Right. I mean, I've got a another in Angel Di Castillo who uh, wants an arm and a leg, right? And so he's probably going to free agency. 
unless something weird happens over this next month or two. The whole conversation that relates into what you're talking about there, though, Ted, I think is that the the world uh, could well be changing in this question of how much an opt-out influences the negotiation inside free agency is an unknown. Right. It could be zero or it could be fairly high. You know, what, um, I, what I've noticed, and the only one that I have a lot of experience with is team options, is that turning, a, uh, having a player ask for five guaranteed years and making the fifth year a team option, with as long as you put a good hefty buyout in it, does almost nothing to their asking price at all. And I'm not talking about a little chintzy, you know, 800000 Like, you know, if you're paying him $10 million, put in a three, three and a half million dollar op buyout fee for that team. And they don't care. It doesn't change what they ask for on the average value at all, as long as you have a really good size buyout for your team options. So not to expect that player options would work the exact same way, and opt-outs are probably a totally, totally different animal, but I, I, I do wonder if they don't move the needle as much, um, yeah. at least in earlier versions. I, I wish we knew more about what's going to happen going forward. <laughs> But then where would the joy be? Where would the magic be if you knew everything about how the game worked? Right. Um, let me take another small twist on this uh, because there's another use that I have seen, and I've used it a time or two, and that is the idea of adding a um, player option or a player opt-out on the last year of a contract that also has a team option, so it effectively becomes a mutual option. What do you guys think about that? So does that work now? Because when, yes. it, when it first was brought into the game it didn't work okay so it works now but the first year it showed up i had an opt-out team option and the player opted the player decided to opt in and i never got to decide whether or not i was going to execute my team option. um which just whatever i would have taken it anyway good well nice to hear that it does work what are your thoughts on that steven you know i've never used um i've never done that but i think that i think it could definitely be a, a tool instead of just giving a straight player team you know i don't know that it would be widely applicable it's certainly something that could make sense for the right player i think you're thinking it would have to be like marquee player don't know if you're going to want them on the roster that year or not don't know if they're going to decline don't know what they're going to be like but also you're using their opt-out for the typical reasons you do to maybe lure them to to stay or stick around for a little bit i think in the right situation it could be a really powerful tool uh, again, I'm super conservative um, when it comes to contracts, and I don't know that I would like to pretend that I know what's going to happen that many years in advance. <laughs> the example that I have in mind for right this minute is my own Carlos Gonzalez, right, who I signed last year essentially as a one-year deal with a mutual option for next year. And that was at 6.75 or $6.8 million, whichever it is. Um, and my thinking on that was that from a overall you know, management of risk standpoint, the adding the player option really didn't change my overall planning scheme, right? It's only one year out. The other aspect of that is that at $6.7 million, I don't care if he opt out, opts out. It doesn't influence me because I'm very happy to go back and get another center fielder. Uh, so effectively, uh, I mean, I may end up uh, sending him back to free agency at $6.8 million anyway, because I think I can probably get him for 4 or $5 million if that uh, if that comes about. So essentially, I knew I was slightly overpaying anyway, and this was a way for me to manage the risk of the second year's contract and still hopefully get him to agree to come 
play for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's a I think he's a good example of where it does make sense. So maybe that is where it, it maybe it's the shorter deals where you know that you've got a decision like that coming up relatively soon. I don't again, I don't know that I would like to predict five, six years down the road, knowing that that would be a useful salary structure or contract structure. But for a situation, yeah, with a guy that you may or may not need next year and may or may not be happy with, I think it's 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 not a, it's not a bad move. I, I definitely like it a lot more than the purely player-controlled um, aspect. Alrighty, let's uh, twist down to uh, two more very quick questions, probably. <laughs> Let's talk about vesting options, I right? Love that's a, that's options. an option that we uh, that we don't often talk about. So they're the best. There's nothing. Vesting options are fantastic, and the reason they're fantastic is because we can be heartless. We can be heartless. Unlike uh, in real baseball, I have to deal with the fact that my St. Louis Cardinals are going to play Dexter Fowler next year. I don't know why they would do it. It's a sunk cost. They should cut him. They should just release him from the roster, but they won't do that. That doesn't happen in real life for who knows what reason GMs or managers do dumb things. But we don't do that. We don't have to do that. So we can use vesting options as basically a non-buyout team option or a I never intended to play you that next year or the final year with this vesting option at all. But you know what? If you're amazing and you surprise me and you vest, fantastic. They're the lowest risk Completely manipulatable. Is that a word? They're they're fantastic. I love vesting options. Stephen, uh, yeah, I don't really use them, but I I definitely see Ted's point. You know, it, it may be something that needs a little tweaking to uh, to limit the criteria to be you know realistic. Kind of like the tweaking that that's been done to increase the buyouts on team options. But yeah, like Ted said, it's you know it's you're completely in control of it, and and it offers you that opportunity to uh, keep a player around if they surprise us. Yeah, I think you struck on an important um, aspect that either people think about or don't think about, and that is the question of how out of the park values the idea of a vesting uh, number. I tend to look at them. I I, I don't use them enough uh, when it comes down to it. I, I tend to agree with Ted's point of view. Uh, I do worry that they're able to be uh, fiddled with a little bit by a savvy GM who can play the metagame better than the than the AI figures it out. Uh, but actually, I tend to look at them mostly as injury insurance, right? I gave, for example, Jose Chavez a vesting option at the end of his contract, specifically because I figured uh, the chances of him making it through the six years without getting crushed are are almost none. <laughs> so uh, so I didn't have to deal with the team option and a buyout. Well, and that's a really good, um, you know, I think that's probably the single most underutilized option that we have is injury prone, especially pitchers. You know, they're the most predictable and the I might miss a ton of time sort of range. Now, Chavez has hung in pretty strong the last few years, but when you have players that you're significantly worried about them losing time to injury, like, like Tully Crow should never sign a multi-deal that's not just all vesting options. Like that's you know, like at this point, like that's, and I, I you don't see a whole lot of that, and I think that's probably a really underutilized uh, uh, tool. Yeah, I agree totally. It's, it's not something that I think about, right? Mm-hmm. And and I have to think about it when it comes down to it. I think about player options and I think about team options. And players ask for opt-outs, but players relatively rarely ask for vesting options, which is probably in their best interest. Right. <laughs> 
one of the ones I, I one of the uses I like for vesting options is um anybody that you're like coming off a down season, it's like, man, they've not been good for a couple of years. Was it the park? Was it just the system they're playing in in the park and that was the problem? Vesting options for those players can be fantastic. Because a lot of times you can get them on like a one-year, essentially a one-year deal with a vet, with a couple of vesting options or with a vesting option and a team option, and it's the one year that you're paying like six to seven million dollars because they still want a little bit of money even though they've been terrible. But a lot of times you can get those vesting years, maybe a couple million less, so like a seven million, five million, five million deal. And if the player bounces back and becomes good again, you're happy to pay them that seven million, and now they vest because you gave them enough playing time because they were good and now you've got a legitimately good player for a couple years um and that's that's one of the spots i i like to do that and that's i i use them a lot with um uh, you know I'm a, I'm a lefty heavy system so i always need right-handed platoon bats and i'll use them a lot for veterans that really you know like a 34 year old vet that just had a terrible year i'll pick them up and throw in a vesting option and about a thir- most of the time they still suck but about a third of the time they really bounce back and i get them for a few more years after that and they're great no i like that i, li- I hadn't thought about it that way but that's a uh, i hadn't thought about using them as a, a veteran uh, release valve kind of thing that's a that's an interesting twist i mean that's just... which is the why we're which is why we're here chatting right so we can all learn new things about how to use use the game and that's a, you know that's, that's not shouldn't be anything groundbreaking right like that's the not that I'm not, I'm not trying to say you guys should have thought of this but I realized I just spent like three minutes talking about like using the vesting option the way that it was always intended it is a prove it contract right and it's <laughs> uh, I think that there's a yeah. lot of good ways that you can you can do that or there anyway I to recap I love vesting options I should use them more I think we should all use them more um, if you're not gonna Every, you get a vesting contract you get a vesting contract. Right. <laughs> The whole team, who knows, like whoever, someday would look at my team and like year plus one will just be half vesting contracts. It'll just be whoever plays well. Um, actually, the team we'll see that on is uh, Allen. He'll sign like a billion pitchers. They'll all have vesting contracts and whichever one's sticking is Cyclone. We'll all, I'll be there the next year. Well, let me wrap this up with one final uh, uh, twist thing that we often don't think about here, and that is compensation picks in the draft. And how do we think about the effect of options on compensation picks? Steven, you should go first. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, uh, I like the fact that we do the compensation picks, and I like that it's something that's accessible by, by pretty much everybody if you're, if you're deliberate about it. And it's something that definitely tilts, I mean, in and of itself, it's not enough to, to make player options more valuable than team options. But in certain situations, it might be better to sign that guy for a one or two year contract and don't tack on any team options, you know, or, you know, make the options player options so that if you anticipate he might be someone who would help you get a compensation pick at the end of the contract, uh, then you do, you do get that out of him in addition to, to the performance uh, on the field. So um, I think I've been on the record before saying I think we should get rid of comp picks, but that's a whole other argument. The answer with him in relation to options is I don't think about it enough. It's a mistake that I've continually made, and that's one of the drawbacks to team options, especially on players that you really think could have a pretty good year, is that if you let them go, you can't get a comp pick. 
and it's just not something that's really been um, part of my analysis of, of offering contracts is this player could net me a comp pick later. And I think part of that is because I'm relatively inactive in free agency. I tend to not sign high-end players, uh, but but still, it's it's a both of you I have seen maybe not sign a player with the intent of getting a comp pick, but knowing that there is a possibility that that's what this will turn into. That is a drawback to team options, is that you really are cutting into your potential of, of getting picks. And extra first-round picks matter. They really do make a difference. So, Yeah, if there's one thing to pull out of here, in my mind, uh, there, the, the idea that a comp pick is attached to a player who either accepts their player option or who plays out their contract is just an idea that needs to be in the head of every general manager. I, I think that, you know, if you follow the legend of Billy Bean, he's he's yeah. theoretically kind of the first guy who truly understood that, right? And it became a small market tool to use. But yeah, I think that uh, the main thing is to realize that even as you're trading a guy, you know, we're, we're sitting here at trade deadline and a team who has a player, a star on an expiring contract needs to be thinking about it from the point of view that, hey, I am trading a first round draft pick plus this guy right, for whatever they get right, right before it's all said and done. Don't just sell them for a bucket of baseballs because you aren't because they're going to walk. Yeah. Any other right. thoughts on that, Stephen? No, that's a that's a, a, a big topic for another day. Well, given that, any other thoughts on uh, options before we call this one a day? No, not really. I think they're a you know they're a tool. Uh, that's that's really what they are. And like any tool, if you're using it, you should be using it deliberately. One of the worst in in not just an OTP, but in any any situation where you're given a, a tool or an, an ability that you can use, if you're not understanding what you're doing with it while you're doing it. Um, it is a good way to get yourself in trouble. So if just because a player asks for a contract with options and opts outs and other stuff in it doesn't mean that you should sign that contract. You should if you you should think about what those mean and where they fit into your structure and don't just take them as something that's a necessary evil or part of part of the deal if they that's kind of just my thoughts on them. Steven? Uh, I think we pretty well covered it. I I'm good. Alrighty. Well, again, thank you so much for your time here today. Uh, I know pulling you away from the NFL or, or your uh, or your mousecapades, Stephen, <laughs> which you can talk about on the board if you want to sometimes. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks again, and uh, we'll uh, hit another topic later on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. The Brewster Baseball Association is an out-of-the-park baseball league commissioned by Mr. America himself, Matt Rechtenwald and competed in by an amazing group of outstanding general managers. Check us out at MontyBrewster.net. You have been listening to Dorks Being Dorks, a podcast where we put BBA GMs together to talk about out of the park and how it works in the BBA. Music is Some of My Fears by Daisy May and is used under a Creative Commons attribution license.
and it peaks at its wine stand.